Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are delighted that you're here joining us in our journey through God's Word. We have each and every day at this time one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Word of God that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, feel free to join on in with any question you have about the Bible, how to apply the Bible to your life, how to answer maybe tough questions you get about the Bible, or maybe you've got a tough question or two percolating in the back of your mind. Hey, bring it on. We would love to be able to explore those questions with you on the broadcast today. Uh, If you'd like to talk about the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over that. Uh, Just uh, make sure it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to dive on in. Uh, You you can join us and get your questions to us through a number of different platforms. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R, not the number four, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. That will be open and available both to receive questions before, during, and after the broadcast. We'll have a tab open to keep a check on that. Note as well, if you want to verify proper spelling, if you join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, Christian Fellowship with two L's.com, we'll be happy to engage with you in the Watch Live tab that's at the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to a, I guess, live streaming platform where we are broadcasting from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. And as well, for those listening on Reach Radio, it will be the same content you are receiving but a day earlier. Note as well, if you want to know when we are broadcasting in your respective time zone, our social media platforms can accommodate that. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, T-U-C-S-O-N. And if you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live. However, since this is the day and age of censorship, we don't know when or why we'll be taken down for anything that we potentially might say. And since we're known for having no filter when it comes to what we can believe and have reason to believe is the truth, they can only silence us by literally cutting the cord. So if you don't see us broadcasting in the respective schedule, we of course uh, will take full credit, and by we I mean me, responsibility for any technical issues or delays in that, but note if that is not the case and we are being taken down by outside forces and influence, Note that our website will still be online. They can't ban us on our own platform. Noting the reason as well, just to recap for those listening, I very humorously point that out every time because we have been the target of censorship in the past, and it is always in my best interest and preference that when we're met with unreasonable people, I respond with humor. So they're never going to hear the end of it. And you're nobody until you've been censored on the Internet, so we take that as a compliment, right? Yes. But anyway... (laughs) 
That is how you can get a hold of us. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. This will be spelled out at the bottom of the screen of our streaming page, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be able to meet with us every single day. So with that all said, if you have sincere Bible questions, note those are the standards for what we'll be participating with and engaging with on the broadcast. If it is sincere, you want to hear the answer. It is about the Bible, the ultimate goal, not the topic, but the goal of the question ends with what the Bible actually says, not going beyond it, not suggesting underlying themes before it, but what the Bible actually says. That will be accepted, and of course, these are questions, not statements. We'll be happy to meet you halfway if you have difficulty forming the question, but we want to make sure those are the standards we'll be meeting with. And note, this is available both for those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that was meant to prove, but if you aren't a that ilk. Say you are an atheist, you are a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Unitarian, uh, any of the other cult groups that deny the fundamentals of the Christian faith but are told every single week that you don't actually. We'll be happy to engage with you as long as the same standard is applied to your questions, even if it is from a decidedly and admittedly hostile background. If you're a Muslim and you deny the core claims of Christianity, if you're an atheist and you deny the core claims of theology, if you are not a Christian, you're still welcome here. Just remember our rules. The questions need to be sincere about the Bible and actually questions. So, with that all said, if you want to get your questions to us, we'll be watching, but we want to make sure that whatever answer is given comes from the only one worth listening to, so why don't we ask him to be a part of the broadcast? I think that would be an excellent idea. Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to meet with you today. We pray that you would be the unseen but central guest on this broadcast today. You'd be the host, you'd be the director, uh, you'd be the answer of all the questions we have. Uh, please grant Sean and I the wisdom to look at your word first, last, and foremost in every interaction we have. And Father, help us not just to answer the superficial questions, but maybe even get down to the uh, questions of the heart. We pray for those who are joining us who are maybe on the outside looking in at a real relationship with you. I pray that you might speak to them deeply as your word goes forth and perhaps even uh, save some people uh, before this broadcast comes to an end. Thank you, Lord, for all the faithful people that tune in each and every day and uh, supply us with such great questions. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be able to answer those questions in a way that edifies, exhorts, and comforts as your word tells us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, while we're waiting for the questions to come in. Uh, there's a question that I was sent along online, uh, wasn't sincere by any means, but certainly worth discussing for further use by our listening audience. Before I get to that, though, is there anything that you have received in advance before we get into the questions? Oh, why don't we just uh, dive on in? I mean, there's there's a number of uh, different things we could talk about as far as biblical prophecy is concerned. There's a report out of a uh, think tank in Jerusalem that estimates that uh, Iran is now about three months away from uh, being able to uh, put together a bomb. We can talk a little bit more about that uh, on Friday as things develop along those lines. Uh, There's been a massive uh, U.S. and Israeli uh, war game that has gone on that is designed to simulate a a long-distance attack on Iranian nuclear sites. So uh, that coupled with an IAEA, International Atomic Energy Association, uh, uh, statement that Iran has been uh, very intransigent as far as uh, being able to live up 
to any kind of uh, reasonable inspections of their facilities. Things seem to be uh, warming up in that neck of the woods. Uh, we need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but uh, that's that's pretty much a highlight. It's kind of business as usual in that that neck of the woods. As far as biblical prophecy is concerned, let me uh, just get in a quick plague, or, or not a plague, a, uh, a plug, I should say. I added an E to a plug there. Uh, if uh, you want to uh, dig deep into biblical prophecy tonight, Sean and I are going to be exploring fascinating stretch of uh, the Word of God in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at the Antichrist protege, the false prophet tonight, and uh, learn a thing or two from this ultimate false prophet, uh, not only about how we can spot uh, some of his protégés in our day and age, false prophets that come our way, but also how to uh, judge a true message from God. Uh, I think uh, it's going to be a fascinating time. Uh, it's at our Oasis service. We're going to be not only having that kind of in-depth Bible study, but as is our want on the first uh, Wednesday of the month, we have a little afterglow time, time of just uh, worshiping and seeking the Lord in prayer. So if you'd like to be a part of that, come on out to Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you're here in Tucson. We're located on the northwest side of town, just off of Prince and I-10. You'll see our bright red Calvary sign from the freeway. Very easy to find there. We'd invite you to come on out and uh, be a part of things personally. If you'd like to watch online, again, through any of the uh, channels that you're joining us on, whether it's uh, Facebook, whether it's YouTube, uh, whether it's our Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson website, you can be a part of things as well. So looking forward to uh, digging deep into uh, the book of Revelation tonight with you, Sean. Uh, very fascinating uh, things to see there uh, that we're going to explore. All right, so going out to the questions that we've received in advance, this wasn't as much a question but more of a challenge received from both an atheist and a Muslim. Unfortunately, the two kinds of people and personalities I engage with regularly. Uh, the first one in regards to Islam was about as productive as you'd imagine. Every single bit of evidence for claims against Islam was disregarded. I was accused of twisting the evidence, and that's not actually what it says when I'm posting the text in front of them. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, is not to be unexpected, but it gave me, I guess, a uh, spark of interesting juice in my brain, and it made me note the second time it came up when a more level-headed but nonetheless still Antichrist individual, uh, the name of the channel was Sandra, as in part of it, and they said, well, what evidence is there for Jesus's claims anyway? And both kind of fell along the same theme. Uh, if you are familiar with a YouTube page by the title, What Do You Meme?, headed by John McRae, he's done a number of very engaging, very well thought through and uh, properly presented videos discussing this topic, but we figure why not pass along the good information. The issue of evidence. What is evidence? That's always a very fancy three-syllable word that's thrown around uh, basically among intellectual quote-unquote circles in order to come across as objective, but if you don't actually know what you're looking for, then you can be given all sorts of evidence, and it's not going to mean anything because they don't actually know what it is. And that's unfortunately a natural byproduct of the internet. You're given information, but not evidence. You don't know how to test it. You don't know what the information actually is. And 
most unfortunately, you don't know if the evidence is true, the information is true, rather, let alone that it qualifies as evidence. So to start off the broadcast, I thought I'd do a quick recap of the sort of things that count, not just as evidence in a broad sense, we'll clarify that too, but historical evidence. When you're talking to people about why you believe Jesus rose from the dead, that's where you should start in any conversation about why to take him seriously, the reasons you have to believe that are also going to be key. We don't want to be unreasonable in our faith, a la the title of the program. So kind of, I guess, jumping ahead of the game, what is evidence in its simplest terms? It's something that makes something else more likely to be real or to be true in line with reality. So if there are things that can be presented that would make something more likely to be true, and this is what you can clarify, does that mean that it demands a conclusion? The answer is no. You can have evidence for things that are ultimately false, but you have to test that evidence in light with their conclusion. Evidence doesn't tell you to do anything, it tells you something. And if that something doesn't lead to what they are doing with it, then all the better. You've learned how to handle evidence. But if someone were to come to you with evidence for atheism, and by the way, there is evidence for it, all they're telling you, and this is where the dictionary and the thesaurus come in, understanding what words mean and how other ways those words mean the same thing. Evidence is just a reason. It is just a thing that would make something else more likely to be true. So if someone gives you an emotional experience based on their dislike of anything pertaining to God, that is evidence. Is it conclusive evidence? No, because anyone's emotional experience will only ever and should only ever influence them. And even then, they need to be more grown up about how they handle their emotions. Secondly, if you have an experience with God personally in your life, say a uh, pseudo-miracle or an answer to prayer, is that evidence? Yes, but does that lead you to a conclusion? No, because that only affected you in your life. It doesn't mean much to someone who either A, wasn't there, and B, doesn't have every reason, or at least a reason, to trust that that was what you claim and perceive it to be. These are just things that would make other things more likely to be true. That's why you need to specify, am I talking about evidence in a broad sense or evidence in a historical sense? There's also scientific... Usually in those those, uh, conversations, uh, people are just throwing that out with uh, the implication that there really is no evidence to support belief in Christ, right? Uh, yeah, that, that it's just what you believe and your tribe and your group, you all get together and, uh, you know, they use uh, terms like you just want to believe in a sky daddy, it meets some psychological need of yours. Uh, and so when they say there's no evidence, what they're really saying is, is that Jesus isn't real, uh, it was made up by other people, uh, that there's no uh, grounding uh, historically, scientifically, archaeologically, that would lead someone to that conclusion, correct? In a sense, I don't know what Feuerbach's wish fulfillment theory about Sky Daddy has to do with much, but that's again more Well, it gets thrown out an awful lot, right? And that's why you need to be on your toes. So when we ask for evidence, you need to ask what kind of evidence, you need to understand what evidence is, and you need to make sure that you're not imposing on them a standard that evidence isn't actually meant to accomplish. Because no, we can do this too. We can say, oh, it's inconclusive evidence. My pastor seemed convinced. Well, the convincing of someone you respect in your life and who has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy over time is evidence. But is it convincing evidence? Is it historical or scientific evidence? evidence versus 
Maybe not so good evidence. It would be personal, not practical. Yeah. So this is where we need to not only be wise, but also you need to be informed so that you don't fall into this trap. So right. what sort of evidence do we have for the claims and the deeds used to back them up of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, as we stated earlier, it should always start at his resurrection because that's what he said would ultimately verify what he came to this world to prove, that he was God and that he came for a purpose that was our redemption back to him. But noting that point, if they don't believe there is a God, but do believe, or at least can rationally conclude, the reasons you give that Jesus of Nazareth existed and prove that he was a God, well, it's not hard to admit a man existed. It is harder to prove that someone was that God, but if you give them enough evidence and they're rational, which is a big if, this is ultimately where our responsibility stand or fall, giving a reason for the hope that is within us. Our hope is that when we get to the other side, Jesus will be there because he went first and came back to say, it's all cool now. Yeah. I dealt with the problem. So here's the point. What evidence do we have? What reasons do we have to believe that Jesus of Nazareth claims to be God and the deeds that back them up actually were a thing? Well, the sort of things that historians, the people who study history, the people who know history, who know how to recognize history, consider evidence would go in a lot of directions, but I'll just name four for the sake of time. The first is the amount of evidence, yeah. that if you have more information on a topic, that makes it more worth looking into. Now, no, you can have more copies of anyone else and it still be a lie. But if you have enough copies, you can at least know what was being claimed. Then you can come to conclusions about what was said. How many copies of Jesus's biographies, this is discounting the other letters in the New Testament that were written as a result of those events, but regarding the Gospels, how many Greek copies alone are we up to as far as ones we can examine within well, before the invention of the printing press. Well, we are, our New Testament is based on over 5,800 at last count, and it's going up. Uh, copies of uh, the New Testament, uh, pieces of the New Testament in the original language Greek. Uh, to add to that, we have over 18,000 examples of versions, that is, translations of the Greek and other languages from the time of Christ. To add to that, we have over 86,000 examples of verse quotations in letters of early church officials to one another. In fact, you could reconstruct almost uh, uh, seven-eighths of the New Testament based on those verse quotations alone. Now, that's a lot of copies, but were they all things that were made up a la Dan Brown at the Council of Nicaea, and that's where they all start? Or do a good number of those copies, you mentioned the Church Fathers, date to within the lifetimes, or at least a century of the events they report? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you will uh, have people throw out, I guess it's bringing treasures out of the storehouse of ignorance, is that uh, the earliest uh, uh, Gospels were written a couple hundred years after the events, uh, I saw Bill O'Reilly on Fox News uh, confidently make that claim at, at one point, uh, to which I replied, Bill, you need to stay in your lane. You're probably good on politics, but theology, uh, you need to get your facts straight. Uh, for instance, uh, the earliest fragment that's been uh, confirmed, there's some that are still in the basis of being evaluated, but the earliest fragment of the uh, New Testament is uh, the Rylands fragment of John, you know, the John Rylands Library in uh, Manchester, England, where you can see it. I believe it's in the British Museum now. They moved it over there. But the Rylands fragment of John, even by the most liberal uh, evaluations, uh, the most skeptical critics will say, 
probably not uh, much uh, later than 120 AD or less than uh, 30 years after it was written. Most scholars believe it was uh, a lot earlier than that. And that little piece of papyri, no bigger than a credit John card. chapter 5 is what's uh, contained in it. Yeah. yeah, in the original Greek. And what's interesting is, based on the existence of that little piece of flesh, what ultimately ended up happening as a result? That evidence through literally libraries of scholarly work that was critical of the New Testament into the flames. Why? Because based on that evidence, that reason to believe that the Gospel of John was not in fact written 200 years after the events that took place, that then concludes what? That those claims are false. Notice how they're handling the evidence. If you have something that existed before the first, that means that it wasn't the first. (laughs) So that's the point. And and, and, I mean, you could go on. I mean, we have, uh, uh, for instance, the the, uh, Canon of Marcion, it's called, that dates probably no later than 110 AD, that provides a list of New Testament books, including uh, the Gospel accounts, the letters of the Apostle Paul, that this fellow, Marcion, uh, considered to be uh, uh, canonical, if you will, considered to be uh, divinely inspired and read in the churches. So, you know, the list can go on. And if we're to compare this to any other book in ancient history, it pales in comparison, not just as far as numbers, but also how close it was to the original events. The earliest copy that we have of Homer, that's almost a thousand years after the writing of the original. And also note as well, that's taught in school. No one has any reason to doubt that it was horribly corrupted or transfigured through the passage of time with oral tradition. Note, I don't doubt that some changes creeped in over time. Most were language, but the historians are right in that you can basically take it at face value. But if you have a copy or a piece of a copy of the Bible within a few decades of the original, whereas we have thousands of decades between the next runner-up as far as the most numerically supported and the most and the earliest supported. Two forms of evidence. Historical documentation for the Gospels. No, you can't let that religious bigotry go in there, even though, let's be honest, if you read Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, there are some uh, mentions of gods in there too, aren't there? I believe so, yeah. But that's not religious, yeah. even though it mentions divine natures. Anyway, all marks and jabs against inconsistency for the world we see it today. But Thank note you. these two forms of evidence. We have early evidence, we also have numerical amounts of evidence. Now that helps us, because if we can compare the earliest to the latest and the transmission in between, we can ask what was the claim, and know that within a reasonable doubt. We can also mention doxologies, studies of hymns, like 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, which mentions 500 documented eyewitnesses, and this is going to be key in a moment, of people seeing Jesus after his very public and torturous execution at the hands of the Romans. Now, this is where we get into the third form of evidence, embarrassing evidence, the sort of things in those copies of the information. What would make it more likely to be true? Well, if they had to admit to things that hurt their credibility in the culture they were speaking to. If we heard an eyewitness documentary that was written by or that came from the reports of women in the 21st century United States, no one would consider that embarrassing. In fact, if anything else, that's the sort of thing news agencies are looking for at the expense of men. But if, on the other hand, we were to go to first century Judea under the occupation of Rome in that day and age, what were the writings of the Jewish Sanhedrin? Let the words of the law be burned, then touched by a woman. And their prayers began with the words what? Lord God, 
creator of heavens and the earth, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Yeah. So if these Jews who were reporting and writing the eyewitness documentaries admit that the people who saw and believed, by the way, that Jesus had risen from the dead, the core claims of Christianity before anyone else were women, that would not have been something they made up. It would have to have been something they admitted. And those are the things that yeah, historians not, look for. Not to mention the accounts of the uh, disciples being less than what we would call spiritual superheroes. And also yeah. noting that their Messiah figure was crucified. That was a picture in the ancient world of Rome's victory over somebody, let alone the yeah. uh, status of their God being crucified by the Romans. So note these things that are admitted details, things that had to be true, because you wouldn't make up things that hurt your case unless it was in the context of comedy, which the Gospels are not. So note this point. We have numerical evidence more than any other work in ancient yeah, history. manuscript evidence. Yeah. We have early evidence as close to the originals better than any other ancient document. Yeah, at no, least before no, uh, no time frame that would <coughs> allow, for instance, myth and legend to creep in. And we do have myth and legends written by Jesus, but after the deaths of the eyewitnesses and centuries after the fact. Written so about Jesus, the, not by Jesus, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Note the point. Yeah. We have embarrassing evidence, things, the sort of evidence that would have to be admitted within the cultural context they were speaking to. Understood as such, it increases credibility, but no, just because the Gospels write that women saw Jesus at the tomb may have been just a lucky fluke on the part of the disciples to fall in line with the historical standard that didn't exist till the time of Napoleon Bonaparte. Anyway... All that but can, we digress. <laughs> all that can be thrown aside. Yeah. What is the real kicker? And this will be a twofer for those of you taking notes. The strictest standard for any historian in examining evidence is what's called multiple attestation. And their second favorite is what's called hostile witnesses, people who were enemies of an event, enemies of a cause or an outcome to something that still acknowledged its existence. You can make up stuff about somebody, but if someone else doesn't like that somebody, they would be the first to point out that that was a myth or acknowledge things about that person that would be in conflict with those myths. So if those sort of things exist, multiple attestation, and it comes from hostile sources, these two alone can verify among atheists, among liberals, among conservatives and Christians, the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, and to any fair inquirer, his resurrection as well, as long as they don't have a preconceived bias like these, those held by Barterman. and um, the followers of the Jesus Seminar, and, of course, uh, modern Redditors, but the point still stands. Who was one of the most prominent, prolific, and well-supported, and, of course, circulated writer of the New Testament? It was Paul right. the Apostle. Right. Was that always his name? No. He was originally born as Saul, namesake of the first Saul king of Tarsus, Israel, yeah. and that's where he was born, a Roman province, but from the tribe of Benjamin, and he'd be the first to tell you. Now, were, was the Jewish sect that he was from a very uh, mild and conservative group? No, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And the Pharisees being the people who literally manipulated political events to see Jesus executed when Certainly he was in speaking. on it, yeah. So yeah. that is interesting. Now, what was Saul of Tarsus specifically doing at the time that Christianity was getting a start? There are theories that he was around during the time of Jesus. He was certainly alive, but 
whether he encountered him or not is another issue. What was he doing to the early Christians? Was he engaging them in public debate or just, uh, you know, giving little brief leaflets? No, and persecuting the living daylights out of them. Imprisoning them, yeah. torturing them, yeah. and even killing them. Yeah. And that all continued and would have continued if not for a very peculiar event. What's called on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with who? Jesus. Yeah. You mean the guy that was killed about maybe five to six years prior, yeah, the guy who was crucified by Romans and put in a public tomb and verified to be as such under the seal of Caesar. Yes, the very same. The guy who was torturing people who claimed that Jesus rose from the dead saw Jesus risen from the dead? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's what you call a hostile witness. And yeah. the second is, of course, one I'm Including sure... Including one, uh, by the way, who had nothing to gain by adopting Christianity and everything literally to everything lose. to lose. Uh, read uh, his testimony in Philippians chapter 3 about all the things that he had built himself up. He had reputation, he had education, he had position, he had all the perks and bennies that went with that, he had family connections, uh, yet he gave them all up. To follow Jesus. And by the way, Bart Ehrman grants Philippians and Galatians that both report these things as authentic Pauline apostle or epistles, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who is the second that would uh, provide multiple attestation and being a hostile witness? It was James ben Yosef. Now, who was this James E. fella? Uh, he was Jesus' half brother. So, <laughs> the younger brother, the biological offspring of Mary and Joseph, who had an older brother that was telling people that he was God. Now, I have a little sister, but you have an older brother. Right. If my uncle, your brother, started claiming that he was God, what would be a start to verify that event? A start? A start. Uh, my uh, experiences with him growing up? <laughs> no, if, what would be a start if he were to claim that he was God? What would he have to do to prove that to you? Oh, I'd say he'd have to rise from the dead. <laughs> Which is what led James to then go on from being someone who thought his brother was right, no, he no. thought he was insane, to one of the leaders of the early church. Now, if this was all based on a fraud, that goes in the face of the evidence. If this was all made up by James, that goes against the face of the evidence and his history and his interactions with Jesus and his teachings up until this point. That does not make sense in light of the evidence, like Saul of Tarsus's conversion. That does not make sense given the overwhelming number of evidences and the early evidences that we have to support Jesus of Nazareth's existence and his resurrection, what he did during that time he existed. So when you give this evidence and What's naturally going to follow is, not good enough, I don't care, none of that happened, it's not evidence, it's not evidence at all. In fact, that's all just fabrication that was made up at the Council of whatever. Well, fantastic, but guess what? There is evidence. They have just chosen to put their emotions, to put their social standings, to put their moral preferences ahead of what's actually on the table. And, and a couple things about that. First of all, an individual that is in that set of circumstances can no longer say, I didn't know. They do know, and they'll be held accountable for the amount of light that they received. The second thing is, God's Word never returns to him void. You share God's truth with people, God is going to honor that. We might not be around to see him honor that, but speaking as a person who at one time considered myself to be an atheist, and had an awful lot of Christians gunning for me, hoping to put a notch on their Bible, uh, and getting literally nowhere, 
the things that they would say would eventually come back to me. And I do believe that every time God's Word was shared with me, even though I would uh, reject it and rebuke them and ridicule them, uh, I firmly believe that those seeds of God's Word eventually uh, got through and grew and led me to a saving relationship with Christ. So share the Word, uh, share the evidences, but don't forget another evidence once we present the facts, as you've laid them out, Sean, don't forget to share your personal testimony. Don't forget to share the good things that God has done for you, the changes that he has made within your life, and how God has affected your life personally. Because that's, no, that's not... Uh, historical um, evidence. That's not historical evidence, but that's personal evidence. And in our day and age, um, that kind of personal testimony is uh, something that really impacts people. Yeah, so just remember what evidence is and what we have in our favor. And note, that is a summary of a summary. (laughs) So if you want more information, feel free to let us know. And and we did devote quite a bit of time to this, but it is a really, really important issue, especially in these increasingly skeptical times that we live in. It's very important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it about these things. And if uh, you want to explore that a little bit more in depth, uh, I wrote a book called Reasonable Doubts, Is Your Faith Built on Fact or Fiction? It kind of has a dual purpose. Uh, First of all, it's written so that you don't have to have a Christian thesaurus with you to be able to go through all the verbiage. Uh, But secondly, uh, it it will encourage you, uh, and uh, it will be the kind of book that you could give to a non-believer and they'll be able to hang with it. And uh, there's uh, even some discussion questions we put at the end of each chapter. So if uh, someone says, you know, well, why are you a Christian? Or what evidence is there for that? Or does this even make sense? Say, hey, you know, let's just get together. I'll give you a copy of this. We can read it together. And we can talk about it. So I uh, guess following, following through on the topic of atheism, uh, Isaiah has a question sent from an atheist friend of his who wants to know, this is quoting Sam Harris, is free will an illusion caused by a chemical process? How would you respond? Uh, was that observation about free will something you freely came to, or did a chemical process predestine you to it? It's a nonsense statement. Don't worry about it. Yeah, uh, it kind of fits in the category scripturally of Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It also dovetails with what uh, the Apostle Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Because, uh, you know, when we, we deal with the Sam Harris's and so on of this world, uh, you know, the, uh, the skeptics the, with the uh, PhDs after their names and so on, One of the things that they will say is that uh, there was no design, no purpose in the creation. All can be explained by natural process, including that uh, thing you carry around on your shoulders called the human brain. If the human brain is just the result of uh, accidental collisions of atoms with no purpose or meaning behind it, what in the world would cause you to trust that brain of yours to be perceiving reality properly? You were predestined to. So, you know, predestined by chemicals or who or what? Um, You know, they'll say, well, it was was chance that made all these things happen. Well, once again, they've shot themselves in the foot because chance is not a thing. It is a word that describes mathematical probabilities. That's all it is. Probability never caused anything. You you, you can't, uh, for instance, uh, walk out on your lawn in the morning and step in a pile of chance. It doesn't exist. It has no matter. It has no energy. It is not a thing. It is nothing. It does not exist. It is just a word to describe 
mathematical probabilities. So when someone says chance created everything, now I can imagine things impacting other things. I can imagine cause and effect, but I can't imagine nothing making everything. And that's really where the Sam Harris's of this world end up when it's all said and done. They have to say that everything that we see around us was caused by nothing. And uh, you, you wonder where all this multiverse stuff that is being popularized in Marvel movies and, and, and so on, you wonder where this comes from. Well, it, it's an attempt to get around the inevitability that in our universe as we understand it, right, uh, our universe had a beginning. Uh, we know this by e evaluating things based on the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, there's a certain amount of matter and energy in this world, and it's conserved. And energy in this, this universe is running down. It's, it's not going to be here forever. Sooner or later, the universe is going to run out of gas. That tells us something. The universe had a beginning. Whether you want to call it God spoke or you want to call it a Big Bang, there was a time when the universe was not. It came into existence. So it's not eternal. The problem that the uh, skeptic runs into with all of that is that if it has a beginning, it needs a begin-er. It needs to have a, as Aristotle would say, an unmoved mover to get the whole thing going. So when they start talking about multiverses and things like this, what they're attempting to do is they're attempting to change the subject. They're saying, well, there, there could be a, a trillion, billion different multiverses out there where the right conditions would come together where we would have life. Well, there's no proof whatsoever that multiverses exist. It's like uh, when you hear them talk about dark matter, dark matter has never been verified. It's just a concept they use to try to make their equations on how the universe came together fall out properly. So, you know, when, uh, when people will say things like this, like uh, Sam Harris's statement, uh, ultimately it's self-defeating. The fact that they even care about things like truth and error, like philosophy, like compassion for other people, kind of shoots you in the foot. Because if all we are is a nice roll of some chemical dice, A, why would we care? And B, how could we ever know? So, there you go. All right, question from Holly. Is atheism a belief or lack of belief? Uh, both. They want to basically define themselves out of any sort of intellectual accountability for their belief claims. And so in doing so, they commit the fallacy of trying to have their cake and eat it too. And for those who don't follow along, just basically plug in the equation and see where it falls apart. If you ask an atheist, and this is regarding the evidence we started with, and saying, what do you think about all that? And they say, well, I don't really care. I don't have a belief system. I just lack a belief in God. Or if you hold an atheist to their claim and say, so you claim there is no God, most of the time they'll want to dodge any obligation to give an answer for their conclusions by saying, or defining themselves out of, the saying that the atheist claim is not a claim, but the atheist name is a claim, the claim there is a theos, the no, no God, God claim. Yeah. If we were to more appropriately define the belief system of a lack of belief, it would be not a theos, but a gnosko, or agnostic. If on the other hand they admit that they're an agnostic, they are no longer an atheist, because you can't know a definitive statement that you don't know. But if on the other hand you do know something, you can make that statement and base yourself on that title. 
And also note, if you go to most atheist websites, my favorite is probably the most straightforward, atheist.com. They, in their description of what atheism is, start in the first sentence that the atheism is not a belief, it's a lack of belief. Then you go three paragraphs down, they say, now remember, atheism is about what you believe. They can't keep their information straight because they're made in the, inf- uh, in the image of God and they know that what they're saying is nonsense. But the point being made is this, Holly, if someone starts to define themselves out of a corner, tries to dodge responsibility, don't waste time trying to hold them to intellectual consistency. Find something that isn't blockaded with sloganeerings, memes, and emotions. Find something that they can actually still think rationally about, otherwise you're just going to end up running into conditioning and training. We don't want that. If on the other hand you can talk to them instead about, okay, well, what do you believe? If you lack a belief in God, what do you believe in? And try and find some of the elements mixed in there that actually fall in line with reality, and if some of it can line up with the Bible, like the evidence we talked about, all the better. But note, that's becoming fewer and far in between encouraging to a point, because it means that the Lord's coming soon. There are fewer and fewer people who can be saved, but also note as well, it's discouraging. It should exhort us to be more informed, prepared, and ready to give better reasons for the hope that is within us, because the people that we're meeting with are challenging, and the best part about a challenge is it forces us to get better. That should be the dual response. Yeah, and Holly, the the thing I'd share with you, having some background in all of this, uh, you know, every once in a while I'll get eyebrows raised when I say, you know, I've yet to meet an intellectual atheist. That doesn't mean there aren't some intellectual sounding people who claim to be atheists. But ultimately, you got to realize what a radical statement it is to say there is no God. Um, Sometimes I'll tease my atheist friends by saying, so when you say there is no God, aren't you claiming that you have all knowledge of all things in the universe? How much of the universe do you think you really know about? And if you don't know very much about the universe, how do you know there isn't a God out there? Well, I, I don't know that. Okay, so you're not an atheist. What you are is an agnostic. You simply don't know, right? And uh, they'll go, well, uh, okay, well, here's my question. Why don't you know? What is it about the idea of God being out there that has turned you off? You know, for me personally, I think there are three kinds of atheists when it's all said and done. There are moral atheists, there are individuals who are doing something morally uh, so that they hope there is uh, no God. Aldous Huxley openly admitted that that was the the, uh, prime mover of his atheism, is that it gave him complete sexual freedom, didn't have to worry about a judgment day. So there are moral atheists like that. Secondly, there are what I would call uh, personal atheists. That is, they are atheists because there is someone in their life who is an atheist that they look up to and admire. Uh, in my case, it was my dad. You know, I thought he was the smartest guy who ever lived, and so if he thought religious people were weirdos and that uh, religion was something for little old ladies and didn't sleep well at night, uh, then, you know, I mean, why not believe him? I believe him more than these other people over there. So that's, that's personal, uh, personal atheists. But there is another breed of atheism that leads people, I think, to make that radical position, and that is emotional atheists. Uh, You scratch under the surface, and sometimes you find that uh, people that identified with God, whether it was a priest, whether it was a parent, whether it was somebody that they knew that stuck it to them on a business deal, someone who identified with the things of God hurt them and hurt them very badly. Uh, and, And so if we can understand that framework Uh, we're going to probably get a lot farther being able to get down to the real issues 
Uh, and, and what I always try to do when I talk to somebody that, that comes across that way is to say, yeah, well, I, I totally get it. I totally understand where you're coming from. I used to feel that way as well. But would you like to know why my opinion changed? And then I focus the attention back on the person of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself to me that he loved me and that the evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was compelling. And you throw that out to people and say, you know, I hope you uh, have that same kind of encounter with God because it's been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. So, yeah. And yeah. note that point as well. Uh, Javier has a follow-up on that. It is the trope that atheists don't believe in God so they can keep on sinning too arrogant or presumptuous to uphold? Many could have an emotionally distorted grudge, but what does an unbeliever do besides tending to the things that misalign with the perfect will of the ultimate good, or just doing good and take all credit away from the Creator? Now, Javier, you make an excellent point, and we need to make sure this is clear. Are all atheists the moral scum of the earth? No. Do no, atheists come to no, those? No, my dad guys? was a great guy. And that's the point. Took care of his kids, went to work every day, uh, was high, held in high esteem as a, an ethical lawyer, didn't believe in God. More yeah. moral than what we'd call Kenneth Copeland or Carflo Dollar or any other people who claim to be Christians and are hucksters, for a lack of a better term. Yeah, well, we don't have all the evidence on them, but... I'll, I'll grant the illustration. The point being made is this, though. When we're talking about there being types of atheists, we're not saying this is the only type of atheist. There are moral atheists, people trying to justify an immoral action, but there are also, notice not included, also social atheists, also more uh, emotional atheists, and it could be that they are still moral people, they still reflect the image of God, they still have intellectual capacity to grasp a concept like morality, but don't consistently uphold it with their meta-ethics. And that's, again, a fancy way of just saying they don't know where it comes from, but they still do it because it just seems right to them. That is something we need to remember. If we're talking to someone, we don't assume that they're evil. Now note, when I'm talking to Muslims, do I assume that they adhere to Sharia and are the spitting image of their prophet? No, otherwise they'd be in prison. But if, on the other hand, they are <laughs> upholding certain values, yeah. and I also am aware of other values, right. that if they continue adhering to their prophet and following him blindly, that that could lead to those behaviors. That's why I'm sharing with them, because I want them to stay a good person, but I also don't want them to have to uphold the consequences of following that kind of leader. The same is true for atheists. Atheism has killed more lives in the last century than any other theological-based belief combined, including Islam. It took a lot longer, but the point being made is this. When we're asked the question, is every atheist Mao Zedong? No. Is every atheist Joseph Stalin? No. Is every atheist Mother Teresa? No. no. Yeah. And the point being made is this. We make sure that when we're talking to someone, we don't impose on them the idea, well, the only reason you're doing this is because you want to sin. No, in fact, uh, Peter Martin will be joining us tomorrow. When he was an atheist at a time in his life, he didn't actually sin as much. He had the options, but he found that his struggle with lust and with pride didn't really come to the surface until he started opposing them. Yeah. The enemy is more content with putting us in a state of complacency and comfortability as long as we don't pursue his enemy. Yeah, C.S. Lewis's famous line, nobody uh, knows uh, what it's like to be bad until they've tried to be good. Yeah, and, or <laughs> tried to be good. And, yeah. But the point we made is this, when we're talking to people who are living moral lives and they don't believe in God, that's allowed. That is possible. In fact, it's more likely, because if for better or for worse, more often than not, the people who come to Jesus are the ones who probably have been made aware 
that they need Him in their lives. The people who are comfortable, the enemies lulled them to sleep, not through sin, but through sloth. <laughs> and the point we made is that. So, Javier, again, you're making an excellent point, and thank you for bringing it up. If When we made sure to phrase ourselves properly, that wouldn't have been the conclusion unless people had already made that assumption. But don't impose immorality on people who reject the source of morality. They're still made in the image of God. That's why we want them to receive the gospel. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, we make the assumption that because immoral atheists exist, atheism is immoral, well, that's like saying that there are Christians, uh, immoral Christians who exist, therefore Christianity is immoral. It's dumb. Yeah. So. Yeah, that doesn't follow. But we have to remember as well that when someone is an atheist, they are the classic Romans chapter 1 situation where they are literally holding down the truth and unrighteousness because that which is evident about God is uh, plain to them because God has made it evident. Yeah. Uh, we look around at the creation, uh, we look within ourselves, we have this insatiable hunger for purpose and meaning within our lives, we look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the issue's kind of settled. you got to really uh, work overtime to hold down that kind of knowledge, so yeah. don't underestimate that. Uh, as well. Right, here's a question from Monica who wants to know about the Book of Life. Um, these are presumptions. We'll clarify where they come from. That has our names in it and allows us into heaven. We'll clarify that in a minute because we don't want to get the cart before the horse. Uh, there's a teaching going around about other books, or at least a secondary book, that we need to know about. Where's this teaching comes from? Everything that you mentioned, Monica, comes from a loose handling, but still enough of a presentation to be accurate in Revelation chapter 20, yeah. what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, yeah. it mentions the Book of Life, yeah. but note, the Book of Life isn't what lets you into heaven. This has also been mentioned by Moses, and we'll clarify that context in a minute, but were other books mentioned? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it says uh, in verse 11, uh, the Apostle John writing here, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and who have sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, uh, the idea of books plural there, uh, Monica, uh, refers to the fact that uh, there is, in a sense, a, a book of days, if you want to use that term. In Psalm 139, uh, King David said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me when they were, there was not yet one of them. Are they not written in your book? Uh, that is, God keeps track of everything that happens within our lives, and uh, that appears to be what is going to happen at the great white throne judgment. Uh, there are going to be books open where people are going to get the opportunity to be able to see everything they did in life, probably every opportunity they had to receive God's mercy and forgiveness and how they responded to it. Uh, it's also going to be a book that's going to reveal to people uh, who say, well, you know, I think uh, I, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I think uh, I, I'll take my chances on that. Well, great. You're going to get an opportunity just to see how good of a person you are, not just in terms of what you did and what you said, which would probably discount most of us, but even why you did what you did and said what you said. So I think that's what's being referred to there. But the kicker is this. We are told that uh, it goes on to say uh, that uh, the dead were judged according to the, the works by the things which were written in them. And then we are told uh, that uh, everyone who, and this is verse 15, and anyone who is not found written in the book of life uh, was cast in the lake of fire. 
the Book of Life is uh, God's record of those who've said yes to a relationship with Him. Uh, it's not the way that we're made right in a relationship with no, Him. It's, it's the refl- record. It's a record. It's a reflection, <laughs> and it's really important not to get that cart before the horse. Why? Because the salvation is not by the book of life. The book of life recognizes that salvation is through the finished work of Jesus. Yeah, and interesting, uh, you know, Moses had a very interesting conversation with God when God was talking about uh, doing away with the people of Israel because of their hard-heartedness and their stubbornness and their unbelief. And, uh, you know, Moses made the statement, um, blot me out of your book, but save them. Now, the idea of being blotted out of the book uh, what book was Moses referring to? Well, quite possibly the book of life. And I think it tells us something. God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think everybody who is born has their name in the book of life until they die without receiving Christ as their Savior. At that point, their name's blotted out of the book. And as Revelation chapter 20 uh, reveals to us, if your name isn't there in the book, uh, you're not going to be there in heaven. Yeah, so it's not a, a false teaching by any means, and I know you didn't have that impression, but that's where the idea comes from. Just make sure that the attention isn't on the record. It's how you get into that record. Uh, question from Lynn, who wants to know if Paul, uh, who was formerly Saul, was so zealous he thought he was doing God's will, and no doubt loved and was seeking God too. Yeah, you'd have to be seeking God to memorize the entire Torah and the commentaries and the commentaries and the commentaries. But she thought of God's love and mercy for the person of Saul, that man that was desperate for God and to please God. I think that the father saw Saul was earnestly seeking him, so in his mercy, Jesus revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus so that Saul could find what he was looking for in life, in addition to his calling to for Christ. Thoughts? Thank you. Uh, Paul shared them in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, literally yeah. in the more condensed version of what exactly you said, that was his impression of why God reached out to him in the first place. He also makes the observation that he is the chief of sinners, present tense. But when he's talking about the fact that God has had mercy on him, it's from that framework that starts his ministry, that the pastoral epistle, the testimony he's handing off to his protege, Timothy, he reminds him of that fact first, that God has had mercy on us. Yeah. And if it doesn't start there, it won't end anywhere good. Yeah, it's interesting. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful putting into the ministry, uh, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a uh, violent person. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Well, you know, again, it wasn't just because Paul did those things ignorantly and in unbelief that he was uh, reached out to uh, by Jesus, but that was certainly a factor. Uh, you know, that's why when Jesus greeted Paul on the Damascus Road, uh, what did he say to him? Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, in other words, uh, you think you're doing the right thing, but you're just hurting yourself here. So. Yep. Let us know if that helps you out. A question sent along to us by email from Dwayne, who wants to know, uh, we'll take this as briefly as we can, I read that the stars, planets, moon, sun is the visual heaven. The second heaven is where Satan and his demons are, exists between the visual and third heaven, where God and the Christ wait until God's choosing to coming again to set up his kingdom. His first question is, is this correct? No. And can you tell me where in the scripture it tells this? 
obviously nowhere. Um, the second question is, if the answer is yes, then first, can Satan delay or stop our prayers meant for God because he's in the second? Um, no. Well, 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 well what uh, I think Dwayne's... <laughs> what is meant by the third, uh, I, I, the three heavens? I, I think what Dwayne's getting into there is uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that uh, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. The principalities uh, and authorities in heavenly places. Yeah, and, and so yeah. people will take that and they'll kind of run with it and say, well, that's where Satan does our thing, and he can intercept our prayers, so to speak. Well, he can't intercept our prayers. We're told in the book of Daniel that Daniel's prayer was answered the moment that he sought the Lord, but the answer to his prayer seemingly was delayed because of a spiritual conflict that went on between the angel Gabriel and the prince of Persia. Until a geographical location, yeah. not in heaven, but on earth. Right. But as far as, uh, as the heavens go, uh, it's a question we get a lot because the Apostle Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. Uh, well, you know, we don't have to uh, hyper-spiritualize it. When the Bible speaks about heavens, it speaks of it in three ways. First of all, we are told that the heavens are the abode of the moon, the stars, and the planets. In the beginning, God created the heavens, Hashemayim, and the earth. In other words, when we look up and we see the stars, and the fourth day, God created the stars, the moon, the planet in the heavens. Uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. We're also told that the heavens are the atmosphere around the earth, where the uh, clouds uh, play by and uh, where the birds fly, and so on. The atmosphere, if you will. But the term heaven, as Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is also descriptive of the spiritual domain of God. And so that term, heavens, plural, can be used to describe uh, either of those three states. But it isn't talking about some uh, kind of halfway in between sort of place where Satan runs the show and can get in the way of our prayers. Yeah, and uh, further clarification for this, we can look at Zechariah chapter 3, Revelation chapter 12, Satan's abode is where God is manifesting his glory. And as we're going to be talking about in about an hour, uh, he wasn't happy about the fact that he was cut off from that access to God's glory. But right. noting the point as well, when we're talking about these things, be very careful about people who say, well, here's this secret knowledge here. That's how cults get started. Yeah, yeah, just uh, take the scripture plainly. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. That's God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.